Father, we are reminded that we partake of the bread and the cup because we are partakers together of Christ. The bread is the communion of the body and the cup is the communion of the blood of Christ. And that this sign of the covenant continues to be celebrated until he comes. For your word says, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, we look for that day when you will come back to establish your kingdom on this earth, to judge the world of sin, and to reward the saints for their perseverance in the faith and enduring until the end. Father, we look to that day when you come. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We're going to go to our pastoral prayer, time of prayer. So let us pray before uh, the Lord. Father, in your word, you have a lot to say about unity. You have a lot to say about the way that we as your people relate to one another. Your word says how great and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Your word says, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Your word tells us to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. These and so many more, Lord, scriptures point to unity. We acknowledge that unity is very important to you and very difficult for us at times. What you value so highly, Lord, we tend to forsake or destroy. Lord, we acknowledge that in the deepest and most significant sense, we are united. As your people, we've all been adopted together into your family. So we are brothers and sisters, regardless of the church that we attend, regardless of the nation in which we worship, regardless of the melanin count in our skin. As believers, we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, so we are one body. As Christians, we profess a common creed, so we are one church. As members of this local church, the Living Church, we sit around a common table and celebrate communion together, so we are one congregation. As those who are redeemed and saved from their sins, we worship a common Savior. And as we all come from the same parents, Adam and Eve, we are all of one blood, so we share a common humanity. Well, these are all signs and reminders of our unity. But Father, we know too often that we ourselves interrupt this unity. We can't help but to admit that we have a natural propensity or tendency to divide. Our world is fraught with division, especially here in our nation. The secular world seeks to divide us by the melanin count in our skin, our political affiliation, the false ideology and uh, false, uh, uh, the idolatry of sexual identity. The world has been divided between those who received the vaccine and those who have not. Well, because of these walls of division the world has put up, we are self-righteous people who are quick to think ill or even speak ill of others. We have given in to those secular ideals and let them filter into the houses of worship. 
But Father, let that not be named among us. Let us not elevate small things into big things and reduce big things into small things. Lord, we confess that too often we fail to act in ways that bring greater unity and instead act in ways that deepen division. But Lord, let that not be said of our church here or our sister churches. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for our willingness to divide, for allowing secularism to dictate how the church should look. And Lord, we pray that we stay strong as a church and as churches, that you may strengthen us by the means of your spirit. Strengthen our pastors and our elders at all of our sister churches. Strengthen our deacons and the laity. Strengthen our children and their parents. Strengthen our marriages. Strengthen the fellowship between us here at our church with one another. Lord, strengthen us as we war against and resist worldliness as it tries to creep into the household of faith. Lord, we ask that each of us will be eager to believe the best about each other, that each of us will be eager to serve each other. We ask that each of us will be quick to listen and slow to speak, that each of us will have a deep awareness of the true unity that already binds us together, and that is the unity that we have in Christ as having a common Savior, a common inheritance. And Lord, we pray also as we look into the world, we look into the situation that has taken place with Russia and Ukraine. Lord, we pray for Christians over in Ukraine, missionaries over there, that you may protect them, those who seek to lead the country, that you uh, may allow them passage out. Lord, we pray for the church in that country, that you may strengthen them under these attacks that they are enduring. Lord, we pray that your will be done in that situation. I don't know uh, enough about it to even comment on it. But, Lord, what I do know is that there are believers over there in that country. There are believers also in Russia. We pray for the church over there in both of those nations. We pray for those countries that are closer to them, Lord. Uh, Christians over in those outlying areas also, Lord, that you may be with your church over there as they gather today on the Lord's Day. That you may be with them, Father, in spirit and in truth that they continue to persevere in their worship of you, that they continue to spread and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel that brings true salvation to all who believe. We pray that the true church rises up over there in that area. We pray for hearts to be converted, the heart of Vladimir Putin, Lord, that his heart be converted, that you may work in his heart, that someone may minister Christ to him, and that he may be saved from his sins and from the wrath to come. And Lord, we pray also for our leaders here in our nation that they lead us well, that they make wise and godly decisions concerning uh, our involvement in what is going on over there. Give them your wisdom, Lord. Surround them with uh, sound biblical counsel and that they may heed that counsel also. And Lord, we pray for sound churches here in Calhoun County. We pray, Lord, that your hand of blessing will continue to be upon us as we proclaim the gospel truth in our area. We pray, Lord, that we will continue to hear the good reports about what you're accomplishing in our church and among our brothers and sisters in 
other churches here in this area. We pray, Lord, that you may bring more people into your kingdom as all of us as faithful men proclaim salvation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray as I get ready to preach this message in Nehemiah, as we look at what it means to be committed to you, making a commitment to you, that, Father, we reevaluate our commitments to you, our covenant commitments to you, Father, and that your message may convict us, convict believers, but it may also encourage us that it may bring salvation to those who don't yet believe, uh, convicting them of sin and bringing them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Father, may you use your word mightily. May you send your spirit to illuminate, to, to reveal your truth to us this morning as we hear your word. Father, hear my prayer, and may you answer it according to your good, sovereign, and perfect will. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, let us turn. There's no guess where we are. We're in the book of Nehemiah. As we continue in our series in this great book, I pray that the sermons have been a blessing to this church and to you all. We're going to read uh, verses 9, beginning at chapter 9, verse uh, 38, all the way through the end of the 10th chapter. As we look at our message this morning, the topic is making a commitment to the Lord making a commitment to the Lord so this is the word of the Lord beginning at chapter 9 verse 38 and this was after the people had confessed their sins to the Lord. If you notice just the pattern here, the last few chapters, first you have the reading of the word in chapter 8, and then you have the confession of sins after reading the law and seeing how far they fell short of it. And then now after confessing their sins, they are now making a commitment to follow the Lord. So that's kind of the pattern that we're in right now. So it says here, end of chapter 9 verse 38 because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes our Levites and our priests and you see those names listed in verses 1 through 27 of chapter 10 and then picking up at verse 28 the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, or the Nethanim, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our uh, Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land 
or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of our um, I'm sorry, first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house uh, of our God to the priest, the minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, and it is, and for rather, it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be the Levites. When the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of the Levites shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. So we see the extent of this covenant that the people had made to the Lord. So just observations here. Number one, we live in a world that lacks commitment, where people lack commitment. The Dictionary of Bible Themes defines commitment as a, a state of personal dedication to something or someone, which results in actively promoting and working for their good and well-being. It defines commitment to God. It says commitment to God arises from faith in his promises. It is expressed in worship and adoration and leads to obedience to his commands. So you see the words in here of commitment deal with being dedicated to something, to actively promote and work for something. So commitment is something that we do in action. It is, it is something that we do. It is, it is a verb. It is something that we, we don't just mentally commit to it, but we actually do it. Are you committed to things that God has 
put under your stewardship? That is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Where is the commitment? We live in a society where there's very little emphasis put on being committed or being dedicated to something, to being dedicated to a team, to being dedicated to, to family, to being dedicated to a job or a place of employment, to being dedicated in doing our work in school or, or doing our work at work. Everyone was working on jobs where people try to skate by, do as little work as possible, but still are concerned about receiving uh, their pay. Because our sinful hearts are not automatically committed to things. It is something that God does in our heart. So in this passage, passage we see on the heels of the prayer of confession from the previous chapter that the people now make a solemn commitment to God. It is a covenant of faithfulness to the Lord. The leaders of the people who are the, the signatories, those who, who signed it, we see them in the first 27 verses of this, this chapter. They're the signatories. They're the ones who, who signed it. The governor, Nehemiah, the priests, the Levites, and the lay leaders. All of those are the ones who signed it. You see on the seals are the names of Nehemiah. He was the very first one to sign this covenant. There are other examples of covenant commitment in Scripture. Uh, one example you can find in the book of uh, 2 Kings. Uh, 2 Kings 23 and 3, there was a commitment made uh, to the Lord by Josiah. King Josiah was one of the great kings of Israel. He was the one who restored uh, the worship of God to the people after they had fallen in idolatry with the previous king. So Josiah, in here in uh, 1 Kings 23 and 3, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 23 and 3, it says, The king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. So Josiah was issuing in a renewed covenant commitment to the Lord as part of restoring true worship to God. We see it also in 2 Chronicles, the 29th chapter. And this was on the heels of Hezekiah uh, cleaning the temple. Hezekiah, uh, one of the great kings of Judah, him restoring worship to Israel. And it says here in 2 Chronicles 29 and 10, Hezekiah says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. So he was calling Israel to make a covenant with their God. Else his wrath would be upon them. 
those are just two instances of covenant commitment that we see in particularly the Old Testament. But what it points to is the importance of making a commitment to God and to serve the Lord. This list of people that we see here in this opening passage um, is not known elsewhere. But re it reinforces one of the major themes of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is that the people of God are vital in accomplishing God's redemptive purpose, not just the great leaders, but also the people. The ordinary people who live in Israel, they are just as important in, in doing this, in accomplishing God's redemptive plan. They are just as important as the leaders are. If you look at verse 29, you'll see those who separate themselves and join their brethren to enter a curse. And what is a curse? A curse is a terrible penalty uh, for violating the covenant or a failing to keep it. So they enter a curse and an oath. It says here the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. These are two expressions. They convey the people's serious intention to keep their commitment. So the curse refers to the, the terrible penalty of what would happen if they didn't enter in and obey, rather, this covenant. That's what the curse represented. And then an oath to obey. So they were very serious about this covenant to the point that they took upon themselves the curse that would happen if they did not obey God's covenant. It shows their serious intention. They were very serious about keeping this covenant with God. So we look at our big idea. We're going to look at two main principles from this. A commitment to the Lord requires two things, a commitment to obedience and a commitment to his church. You notice the order there. You don't see church and then obedience. You see what? Obedience to God and then what? Then church. You can't, as, as the uh, saying goes, you can't put the cart before the horse. The cart is obedience to God. The, the, the cart, I'm sorry, the horse is obedience to God. The horse is following God's commands. The, the, the horse, what drives everything is commitment to God and salvation, number one. And then after that, commitment to serving the Lord. And then as you do that, guess what? You're going to be committed to his church. A person who is not committed to the Lord is not going to be committed to his church, no matter how hard they try. They try with all their mental energy to do it, but it's just not going to work because they have it backwards. So the structure of this passage is there's two main structures to it. Number one, the first part of the structure is the sealing of the covenant. We find that in um, the end of chapter 9 all the way through 27 with the listing of the names. And then the second part of this passage, the balance of it, is the obligations or the conditions of the covenant. We find that in verses 28 through 39. 
So let's look at our principles. We have four of them this morning. The first principle is walking in God's law and to observe and do all of his commands. We see this in verse 29. And this is what it says here. These people join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do. So you see those three words there. Walk, observe, and do. We're going to explain what those words mean, but but there's several obligations of the covenant that were made by them. They, commit, they made a commitment to walk in God's law, to observe, and to be careful. You know, observe means to, to keep or to watch or to be careful or to attend unto something. That's what it means to observe. Observe doesn't mean to just look at them. <laughs> no, you have, to, you have to keep them. Observe means to keep. It means to be careful, to attend unto them. In other words, to pay them mind. So that is the first principle that we see of commitment here. Uh, first of all, when the nation committed to, to the following the stipulations of this covenant, they agreed to fall under a curse if the covenant was ever broken. Dr. R.C. Sproul said the, the curse and the covenant went hand in hand. When the covenant was broken, the curse automatically went into effect. As soon as the covenant was broken, as soon as it was broken, the curse went into immediate effect. Matthew Henry, the great um, commentator, said this. He says, when we bind ourselves to the commandments of God, we bind ourselves to do all his commandments and therein to have an eye to him as the Lord and our Lord. Because a covenant is a binding agreement. In other words, it, is, it, it joins two parties together, just as a marriage does. A, a marriage is a covenant. It's not, you know, some people say, oh, it's just a, a piece of paper. No, it's not. It is a covenant between the husband and wife and God. Whether you do it in a courthouse or in a church or in a barn somewhere out in the sticks, it is still a covenant that that man makes to the woman and the woman makes to the man. The husband makes to the wife and the wife makes to a husband. It is a covenant. It is a solemn commitment. And when that covenant is broken, a curse does happen. The curse of divorce, the curse of a broken family, the curse of broken hearts, the, the curse of dashed hopes and dreams. So that is the extent of a covenant, a commitment that we think about. And so 
they are to walk or follow in God's laws. And there are three ways that this is worked out. It is worked out in the personal, it is worked out in the public, and it is worked out in the practical. That is the threefold nature of this covenant. The personal was to walk in God's law. It says again, walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. That's the personal part. They were to embody God's law in all of their life. Think about walking, walking. When scripture talks about walking, it is a deliberate act, just like you deliberately walk. You have to deliberately put one foot in front of the other. It is, it is an action that you deliberately do. So when we're walking in God's law or walking according to God's law, it is a deliberate act that we do. It is a way that we embody in all of our life. We walk. We put one foot in front of the other as we're walking with the Lord. It shows in all of our life. That's the personal part of it. Psalm 119 and 1. The psalmist says this. He says, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Who are the undefiled? Those who do what? Walk in the way of the Lord. Walk in the ways of God. Walk according to his commands, according to his statutes. That is the personal part. To be undefiled in the way is to walk in the law of the Lord. Walking is an action. It requires effort to get somewhere. In our spiritual life it does also. And how do we walk? We walk according to the Lord. How do we walk according to the Lord? It is something that God works in us when he saves us. The Holy Spirit of God applies God's word to our hearts and we live out what the Spirit has worked in us. A person can't walk according to the Lord if they're not in the Lord, if they're not in Christ. You can have some very moral people who are not saved, but they're not walking in the ways of Christ. Why? Because they have not surrendered their life to Christ. They're not uh, part of the sheep. They're not part of the fold. But when we walk according to the ways of the Lord, the Holy Spirit serves as our guide and he guides us into all truth as Jesus had promised his disciples. Excuse me. And then you have the public part of this. A commitment was made by the people to keep and obey his commandments. The second part here says and to observe and what? And do all the commandments of the Lord. So a commitment was made by the people to keep and and to obey his commandments. And in their context, they say his ordinances, which are his ceremonial laws, and his statutes, which are his precepts, his laws, and his decrees, or his principles. Biblical principles, godly principles. That is how we are to live our life out in the public square. We have to live by a certain set of principles as we work. 
we work according to what? A certain set of principles, a certain set of precepts. When we work in our friendships, in our relationships, we have to be guided by certain kinds of biblical principles. That is how we show that. That is how we live that out. That is how that commitment is lived out. To keep God's moral laws. And we do that in the public square. Again, the public square is anywhere outside of the sphere of, of church. Your work, shopping in Walmart or Sam's. We have to live by biblical principles in those ways when someone almost knocks us over with the grocery cart. Or someone gets in the 10 items or less line with a basket full of items. And we only have one thing in our hand and, and we're just standing there like, man, can they see the sign right there? It says 10 items or less. The public square, how, how we live out in public. When someone almost T-bones us in traffic and we lay on that horn. Or we give them the uh, universal sign of disapproval with one of our fingers. How are we in the public square? How is our commitment to the Lord shown there? That is how this looks. And then we have the practical. God's laws have physical application. It says here, his rules, his regulations, and his statutes. You have the practical applications. How they are to be used, how they are to be uh, kept in our life experiences. Again, interacting with other people, interacting with the rest of God's creation in our stewardship. The character that God, I'm sorry, the character of God must be demonstrated in, in how we live practically. The character that God is creating in us does not become ours unless his way is put into practice. And that's the only way that it can be seen. Next principle, we pursue God's will. You see this in verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons they're pursuing God's will that is how we make a commitment God commanded this in Deuteronomy 7 and 3 he says nor shall you make marriages with them he's talking about the, the, the nations that they were going through the, the pagans he says nor shall you make marriages with them you should not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughters for your son. The will of God was for them to separate themselves from the heathens, from the pagans, because the implications were far-reaching. If they did do that, Raymond Brown said in the book of uh, his commentary on the book of Nehemiah, he says, in declaring this prohibition, 
The Lord was concerned about both the purity of their faith and the holiness of their lives. It was not ethical differences which were at issue, but spiritual loyalty, ethical purity, and doctrinal integrity. Being separated from pagans, especially in marriage, was very uh, serious to God. That was what brought Solomon's downfall, was him marrying those 700 wives and 300 concubines. It wasn't the fact of merely just the number of wives he had. It was the fact that they were pagan women because the scripture says that those women took Solomon's heart away from worshiping God. That's what they did. They took his heart away from worshiping God. God had forbidden him to do that, and he did it regardless, and the consequences were tragic, of course. In our covenants with God, we should engage particularly against those sins that we most frequently uh, are overtaken in, rather, and are damaged by. So in other words, those sins that enslave us, we should definitely seek to separate ourselves from them because what do they do they take our commitment away from God if we have ungodly friendships that take our hearts away from God guess what we need to cut them off and pursue God's will we can be easily overtaken and damaged by ungodly relationships and ungodly alliances with people who don't worship God. Guess what? They're going to pull you away from God. They're not going to gravitate toward you and toward God. No, they're going to pull you away. Why? Because they don't worship God. They hate God. Those who resolve to keep the commandments of God must say to evildoers, depart. That's what they must say. Depart. I don't need you. Psalm 119 to 15. Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. We should have the courage to say that to evildoers. Depart from me. We can't be friends. We don't walk hand in hand together. We don't believe the same things. We don't worship the same God. Exodus 34, verses 10 through 17. I asked the question, how are mixed marriages spiritually dangerous? Listen to what God tells Israel in Exodus, the 34th chapter. He says here, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all the people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, all of these were pagan nations that 
God was taking Israel through as they uh, journeyed toward Canaan, and God was sending those nations out. He was clearing the way for Israel by putting all those nations out, all those ites, all those pagans. And this is what God says to them. Take heed to yourself. Think about observing the commandment. That's, that's taking heed. So God says, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. The word lest means for fear that. So God told them, take heed. He says, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods. And make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So God basically in our contemporary language says. Don't mess around with them. Because you're going to end up worshiping their gods. Don't play around with those pagan women. Because when you do. You're going to worship their gods. You notice he didn't say that those women were going to worship the God of Israel. No, he didn't say that. He says, lest you make a covenant with them and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. It never works the other way around. You won't see God say, marry these foreign women so that they can worship the God of Israel. No. Because that is not how it works. So that is why God forbade Israel to marry pagans. Because they would lead their hearts away from them. Paul echoed this also in Second uh, Corinthians 6. When he says to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers you have a man who's a committed Christian who marries a woman who is not or a woman who's a committed Christian and marry a man who is not it's going to be trouble in that marriage it's going to be trouble with the marriage it's going to be trouble in how they raise their children going to be trouble in how they deal with their sins it's going to cause trouble why because they are not equally yoked together they're going to have problems they may take happy pictures and post them on Facebook they may take nice vacations together but they are going to have a miserable marriage because they are not equally yoked they don't have the same destination They may stay married for 50 years or 60 years, but they're still not equally yoked. It does matter. 
So when it talks about pursuing God's will, God's will for them was to not give their daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for their sons. And in our commitments to the Lord, we must be the same way. Not to worship pagans or have fellowship with pagans, those who deny God. Amen. Our next principle that they did in committing to the Lord was to honor his day. To honor his day, which is the Lord's day. Exodus 20 and 10 tells us to, to keep the Sabbath. And we'll talk about what this means. In context, this commitment is to the Sabbath, but it does not carry with it uh, our contemporary uh, world in the New Covenant. For modern believers, the implication is that from the days of the early church, Christians made the Lord's Day, which was the celebration of the uh, resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week and their appointed day for worship. This day, uh, as with the Sabbath, was instituted for the believer's spiritual and physical benefit and not as a cumbersome restriction or burden. So, in other words, the Sabbath to the Jews are what the Lord's day is to us. The Sabbath to them was a day for their spiritual and physical benefit, just as the Lord's day is for us under the new covenant. We worship on the Lord's day. Now, Daniel Hyde in his book, Welcome to a Reformed Church, says this about uh, the worshiping of God on a Sunday. And he explains uh, why we worship on a Sunday and not on Saturday. Number one, it is the first day of the week on which the Lord was raised from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead on a Sunday. That is why the first church, the early church, the first century church, worshiped on Sunday. Number two, the first day of the week is called the Lord's Day. Revelation 1 and 10, uh, the Apostle John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was speaking of Sunday. That's why we call it the Lord's day. So in our bulletins, you know, we always refer to Sunday as the Lord's day because it is his day. It is the day that it is prescribed to worship God, worship Christ. The first day of the week was the day on which the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. That's found in Acts, the second chapter. So that was the day that the Lord um, poured out the Spirit on the church. It was on the Lord's day. Also, just as on the first day of creation, God made light and separated from darkness. We gather on the first day of the week to celebrate the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ who has separated us from the world of darkness and sin. So this is why we worship on the Lord's day. So part of commitment to God is honoring the Lord's day. We honor the Lord's day, first of all, by rising and gathering and worshiping the Lord together. 
I remember when I was growing up, and I grew up in a non-Christian home. You know, although I, I did go to church because I was dropped off oftentimes by my mom at my aunt's house. They stayed right down the street from the church they attended. So, you know, I went to Sunday school, and I was in the youth choir. I told y'all that before. I was a youth usher and, and, and all that. But I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't, I wasn't saved. But I did go to church. But I remember... On Sunday, it was like you didn't do stuff. Very few things were open on Sunday. You didn't curse on Sunday. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was a general cultural respect for Sunday. You know, you try not to get in trouble on Sunday because it was God's day. You know, that, that, that's, that's what we were taught. And again, these are this is a non-Christian context, but it was something about Sunday. It was something about Sunday. You didn't have any athletic events on Sunday, you know, besides NFL football, but as far as kids. Now, Sunday's out the door. People can care less about, you know, Sunday's a day for people to do what? Catch up on cutting their grass, catch up on their yard work, going fishing, going hunting. You know, whatever the case may be, it's a it's it's a day of recreation, catching up on what you weren't able to do during uh, the earlier part of your your weekend. But for the Christian, for those who are committed to God, guess what? Sunday is the Lord's day. It is a day that we look forward to because we are worshiping the risen Christ, because we are fellowshipping with the saints. And we're worshiping Christ with saints from all around the world. In persecuted countries and in free countries, guess what? We're all worshiping God together. We're all praising our Savior. We're all preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ on the Lord's day. Honoring God's day is a way to commit to him. And that can only be done when God works in our hearts and we see the importance we see the importance of the Lord's day that's why it says here in verse 31 and if the peoples of the lands bring the goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day why because they honored day they honored the Sabbath there are certain things that we as believers should forbid on the Lord's day we should treat it as sacred if I happen it hadn't been in a while if I happen to be out of town on Sunday I'm going to find somewhere to go to church wherever we, wherever we are vacationing if it's possible, I would do that. Because that's how much I value the Lord's Day. That's how much I value worshiping with the saints. Some people would think of nothing to miss church. Like, ah, oh, it's just church. It's the same old people there every Sunday. But no, it's more to it than that. The church is a representation of the body of Christ. 
church is Christ. Christ is the head of his church. And we gather together as believers to worship this Christ together. And there's nothing more sweeter than being in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day, honoring his day. Lord, I honor the Lord's day. I am going to church with the saints. That's how much I honor your day. I honor your day so much that I'm going to clear out my calendar as best I can. Now, if you got a job that asks you to work on Sunday, that's different. You know, you're not going to you're going to be a good steward over there. You don't say I quit. Although you would like to. But, you know, stewardship. We can't just quit jobs like that. But if we can help it. I remember when I was in college, when I was younger, dumber, and more stupid, I would be out on Saturday nights going good and well, but I had to be at church the next day. And I would oversleep sometimes, and um, sometimes uh, the pastor, they just come pick me up, be banging on my front door. I'm still asleep. This man came all the way from across town and my grandma to come pick me up to bring me back across town to church. And I'm hanging out all night and then can't even get up for somebody who's coming to pick me up and take me to church, coming from across town to do that. I didn't even think, I didn't even consider that because I was, as I said, younger, dumber, and more stupid then. Because I didn't do what? I didn't honor God's day. I didn't prepare myself the night before that's where that commitment comes in these people in this book that's what they honored that commitment they said they were not bringing goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell because they honored God's day and that is a sign of our commitment and then lastly one of the great signs of committing to God is supporting God's work. You see that in the rest of the chapter about all the offerings that they gave. To give yearly. It says they took on themselves obligations to give yearly. And they gave for everything. For the house of God. The service of the house of God. The showbread. The grain offering. The burnt offering. The Sabbaths. The new moons. The appointed feasts. All the things that God had prescribed for them to do to worship him. Guess what? They said they were going to do what? Give so that they could continue to do that. So they endeavored to support God's work. Notice God's work, not their work. They made the covenant to support the Lord's work. Such should our commitment be. You know, I always said that one of the ways you could tell a person's commitment to God's work is in how they give or whether they give at all. Some people don't give at all. There are times where you can't give, but there's always a time where you can give. The people committed to caring for the Lord's temple, and there are several aspects in this passage that uh, show about their giving. One, they recognize the responsibility of giving or the necessity of responsible giving. 
They took upon themselves the obligations to give yearly. We see that in verse 32. And in verse 35, we obligate ourselves. They recognize the necessity of responsible giving. They declare and assume responsibility to do all that was required of the Lord in giving. We see that they responded to God's word by obedient giving. We see that again in verse 32 and then verse 34 and 36. They cast lots for the wood. They brought their cattle as it was written in the law. So they were very obedient in their giving. They recognized the need for systematic giving. Like giving on a regular basis, not just sporadically. The reference to the wood offering here in verse, I think it's 34. About the wood offering, yes, verse, verse 34. The reference to that wood offering uh, suggests uh, proportional giving was part of their obligations. Because under the sacrificial system, not uh, everyone could afford the same kind of offering. So the provision was made for even the poorest of people to give something. So the wood offering was something that a person who was very poor gave. That shows how gracious God is, that it's more the attitude of the heart than how much you give that really matters. And God makes it where every person can give something. And that's what we see in this passage. I mean, wood, that's like very basic. But that wood was used to help with the burnt offerings, to help light the, the sacrifices. The people were also called to sacrificial giving. See that in verse 35. You see that in the first fruits. The first fruits were the choices. That means the, the highest form of giving was of the first fruits in verse 35 it says to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of our God so they brought the first fruits the very first the very best not giving God what's left not giving him leftovers. When we support the work of God, we don't want to give God leftovers. We want to give him our first fruits, give him our best. Because he alone is deserving of that. Amen. A few principles here, um, rather implications, and um, I want to give a couple of those. Think about in your life. Are there areas in your life that you need to commit to God or recommit to God? Are there areas in our life? Have we had difficult circumstances that have motivated us to recommit ourselves to the Lord? 
Unfortunately, some people only try to make a commitment to the Lord when things get hard. They think somehow they commit themselves to God and everything is going to magically go their way in life, but it does not happen that way. And neither should that be on a person's mind to do that as if you're using God to, to, to get somewhere or to get something. What spiritual commitments have we made to the Lord? Is it to read more, to pray more, to serve the church more, to give more, to strive more with the Spirit's help to, to live according to God's commands, to be a better steward of our finances, to be a better steward over the gifts that God has, has uh, given us, to be a better steward of our time that we spend with him. You know, many people make those commitments uh, at the beginning of the year. But here it is, we're going to another, we're going to the third month of the year. And most of those commitments are gone out the door. Another thing to think about in application is, do you have someone to help, help hold you accountable, someone to motivate you, someone to encourage you? That's what the church is for. That's what the body of believers is for in doing that. A gospel implication of all this is that these people were confessing the sovereign control of God over every aspect of their lives at home and at worship in their social context and in their spiritual obligations. They were confessing as they were making this commitment the lordship of Christ in all of their life in all of it. As believers, we must wholeheartedly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over our relationships, over our time, and over our possessions. He is Lord of all, over everything. And when we make those commitments to him, we must always remember that. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It convicts us but it also encourages us. It causes us to examine ourselves, but also, Lord, gives us a reason to hope. I pray for any of us in here who have made commitments to you, that we commit to your word, that we commit to your ways. But, Lord, we can't commit to you unless we first are in Christ. For those of us who are believers, we have your spirit. The spirit enables us to commit to you. May we just obey the Spirit, to follow the Spirit. For those who are not believers, Lord, that we have to surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. We have to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. We have to repent, turn away from our sins, and turn to Christ and be saved. And then afterwards, live a life of commitment to you. Father, do that saving work by your grace. And Lord, may you bless this message. Let it be an encouragement to the saints. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.